0: This is John Howell Essential Cuts, your daily rundown of the best of the best from today's show on 890 WLS.
1: Amy Parnes is a senior writer for The Hill, and Biden is zeroing in, apparently, on candidates to be his 2024 team. He's looking for a campaign manager. He's looking for a team. And, uh, Amy, thank you. I thought this was a. It's kind of a, in the weeds as far as intra-party intrigue. But are the democratic political campaign professionals really secretly quietly hoping that uh, Biden takes himself out of the running so they can get gigs with somebody else?
2: There has been a lot of talk obviously in the in recent months about whether or not the president will run. For re-election and um, there are signs I mean the president has said that he while well, he uh, is a big believer in fate that he intends to run um, he's told everyone around him that he's going to run they've been preparing um, they are uh, right now assembling his senior team and so it looks like they're they're firing their engines and, and they're uh, they're trying to get ready to roll this out
1: I, I read in your piece at the DNC, has put together some sort of a national advisory board. I know our governor, Pritzker, is part of that board. Is there a chance that that board goes to the president and says, look, people are too concerned about your age. We're advising you to get out of the way and let the pros find other jobs.
2: I don't think so. I think this is a team of people who are they're considered Biden allies and they would be so-called surrogates on the campaign trail. And they're kind of um, getting ready to uh, to talk up the talking points and, and follow in the lead of uh, whatever the White House strategy is. And so I think these are early signs. Of course, people are always looking for signs about whether or not he's running. That's a key indication that these are Biden people and that um, they're preparing for a run.
1: Amy Parnes is here. She's a senior writer for The Hill. This is kind of inside baseball as far as politics is concerned, but sometimes you can uh, see where the intentions are heading by looking to see who's starting to get ready. With that in mind, will he just replicate the same team he had in 2020? Are those people still available?
2: I think some people will be. Well, obviously, he, he the thing about Joe Biden is that he surrounds himself with a very small uh, contingent of advisors, and he has basically relied on them for years um, since he was a senator. And so those people will still be around him. A lot of his, the top um, people on his campaign, like Jen O'Malley Dillon, who ran his general election campaign, will be back, um, not on, in the official campaign capacity, but will help. Be uh, she will help run the kind of strategy and the messaging out of the White House. Um, and then you have um, other people who have been on his campaign, um, including Jen Ritter, who ran his battleground states operation. And she is in contention to be um, a campaign manager or someone very high up um, on the totem pole. So you have a lot of people who, who are very familiar with him and his past and, um, and, his, and how, his strategy in 2020 to win that will be surrounding him again
1: his campaign got off to a rough start in 2020 obviously with Iowa and New Hampshire I'm assuming that those people have already been jettisoned
2: (laughs) they were in, in 2020 they were kind of cast aside Um, And um, the president, well, the then vice president brought in a lot of um, his former bosses, former uh, aides, such as O'Malley Dillon, who I spoke about before, um, and other people who had worked for him. But they, they brought in a whole team of other people to run the general election campaign because they were pretty unhappy with the results of the primary.
1: Amy. It's kind of a different subject, but I think it's uh, germane. Why don't we see more of Barack Obama, uh, especially before the midterms, and maybe leading up to this next re-election, if in fact it actually happens, effort by Joe Biden? Where is Obama in all this?
2: That's a really good question. I often hear from Democrats that they'd like to see the former president on the campaign trail a little more. They'd like to see him, those fundraisers, be a little bit more involved. Uh, of course, he has his own projects going on, and um, when you talk to people around him, they say that he's always there um, in those crunch time moments, and he reappears obviously in the weeks ahead of the midterms and a key election, and and that's sort of where uh, where they believe he can be most useful. So I think that he will continue to uh, advise. Uh, his former, uh, he would, he'll continue to advise Biden and uh, his former staff, um, but will play uh, a sidelines role until he has to kind of hit the campaign trail for uh, the president.
1: And Amy Parnes, senior uh, writer for The Hill, final question. If you had to bet your house on Joe Biden standing for re-election, yes or no? Yes. <laughs> I, I'm, I still don't think it's going to happen. I, I watch the man. I like the man. I don't think he has any sort of dementia issues, but he is every day of his 80 years old, and I just think it's too old for that job.
2: You're not the only one. A lot of people think so. Um, but, but you look at the field right now, and it's, it's silent. They're all kind of preparing for him to run. And, um, and so I think all indications point to the fact that he will run.
1: Amy Parnes, thanks very much for your time. Have a terrific weekend.
2: Thank you. You too.
0: You're listening to John Howell, Essential Essential Cuts, on 890 WLS.
1: Mitch McConnell. Let's talk about Mitch McConnell. He is uh, still in the hospital being treated for a concussion. He fell down at a D.C. hotel, I think, Wednesday night. He's 81. He's the Senate Republican leader and has been since 2007 and recently became the longest-serving party leader in the history of the Senate. As you know, there's a razor-thin balance In the Senate, between blue and red, tiebreakers are very, very common nowadays, and we have uh, several senators who are down, out. So let's start there. It's always good to talk to uh, Justin Finch from ABC News. He is uh, standing by in D.C. with an update on Mitch McConnell. So what is the latest on uh, Senator McConnell's uh, uh, expected return?
3: Uh, We're hearing that he has a few more days ahead in the hospital being checked out for his concussion that he suffered, uh, just for treatment, observation. From there, we are hearing reports that he is trying to get himself out of there as soon as possible and back to work. But we know the doctors are going to do their thing in that regard, making sure he is ready for release. Um, Capitol Hill across D.C., lots of support for a speedy recovery For the Senate Republican leader, Uh, this happened, as you mentioned earlier this week, uh, took a fall at the uh, Waldorf Soria Hotel, formerly the Trump Hotel Wednesday night, and was taken to the hospital very quickly thereafter, John.
1: Has the president sent his well wishes? I missed that if he did. Uh, The
3: president has. He says he's been in touch with the Senate leaders, said he's spoken to the McConnell family, that he thinks he's going to be okay. Uh, There have been bipartisan uh, well wishes going uh, McConnell's way uh, across the board uh, from those that you would not suspect would have a well wish to send. They have sent those anyway.
1: Justin Finch is here. Talk about the wheels of government here continuing to turn, we think. How many senators are we down now?
3: Uh, So we are down two for Democrats. Uh, Dianne Feinstein, John Fetterman are both out for medical reasons. And and now across the aisle, Mitch McConnell. So what's happened as a result is uh, before McConnell's fall, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris was called in to cast a tie-breaking vote in two judicial nominee votes uh, for President Biden.
1: And unlike the House... Well, at least previously under Nancy Pelosi, they allowed proxy voting. They don't allow that in the uh, House of Lords, do they?
3: That's right. In the Senate, they want you there in person. So it does kind of complicate things. John Fetterman actually is working remotely, but he can't really be there to vote. We saw in a hearing for the Norfolk Southern case uh, that his questions were asked by a colleague showing that he's still working, though not physically there, though that physical presence means a lot more in the Senate.
1: I've seen the pictures of Senator uh, Fetterman. Have you seen any video of him? Not recently. I have not. And what about Feinstein? Is she in California or is she being treated in D.C.? Uh, She's in California recovering at home. And what's her expected return date? Uh, That has not been expressed
3: in a very finite timeline. We know that she was treated for shingles and is doing well. We hear her return date. Uh, has not been very clear. She went in uh, last week, I believe, for hospitalization.
1: Justin Finch, as you talk to your sources, you know, in politics in D.C., are there any whispers that uh, some people just hang on way, way too long?
3: And there has been a lot of concern uh, about the uh, maturing of our leaders on the Hill. And uh, you <laughs> might recall uh, a few weeks ago we had Nikki Haley put forward her proposal. Uh, If she were to be president, uh, a mandatory mental competence exam for those 75 and up uh, would seem to box in the the current president and at least one person who is jockeying to be president himself. So if she is saying it on such a platform and so confidently, you know, the whispers are getting louder and becoming full-blown conversations. So I do think that going forward, it's not only going to be a talking point on the campaign trail, but may trickle up to the big house as well. Yeah,
1: I think, I think you're right. And watching what I saw uh, this week in some of those House committee uh, hearings, I think maybe we need a competency test uh, from the get-go for everybody.
3: <laughs> you, you know what's funny? It's like you, you say something like that, and you really kind of isolate not only uh, the, the lawmakers on the Hill that you are aiming to work with, but also voters, too, who are also getting up in age. So. You know, it may be more equitable to give it to everybody.
1: It may be time to really rethink Soiling Green. I mean, just really think it. (laughs) That may be before your time, that reference. Uh, Have a great weekend, Justin Finch. Thanks for your time. Thanks, John.
0: This is John Howell Essential Cuts on 890 WLS. Bill,
1: uh, welcome back to the John Howell Show. How are you, sir? Uh,
5: Take five is fine. As Jim Johnson used to say, close enough for radio.
1: (laughs) Close enough for radio. Bill, um, which group is going to have to pony up the most cash here in the runoff election, the unions or the business groups?
5: Well, I would think the unions because it's valises to lose, isn't it? And he could lose it. But uh, I would look for the IFT, that's the national parent to the CTU, to, you know, pump in another million dollars or something, obscene.
1: Let me uh, play for uh you. play a clip for you of a longtime political consultant, Bowen, here in town. I saw this on ABC7. Uh, I'll get his first name here directly. Tom. He said there's there's a number of ways to win. Here are the three he can think of off the top of his head. There's uh, a couple different ways to win
0: in politics. Number one is to be known better than the other person. Number two is to be liked better than the other person. But number three is to not be as hated as much as the other person.
1: Tom mm-hmm. Bowen is his name. I saw that on ABC7 with Craig Wall. So my next question, when does Paul Vallis who's up by maybe double digits, 12, 11, I I heard yesterday. When does he go negative? Because inevitably he's going to go negative, yes?
5: Well, they will go negative if they see their poll numbers closing. But as it is, he's not taking the bait much from Johnson, and he continues to say with every answer that uh, crime is what he will solve.
1: And he goes into the weeds, the wonky weeds, with his... uh, proposals on how to get things done, drive down crime, improve the schools, so on and so forth, doesn't really attack Johnson. However, Johnson, I guess this is the strategy, when you're behind, is you have to make every answer kind of an obligatory answer on policy, pivot and attack your opponent.
5: That's right. He's got to attack. And uh, Paul is smart for not being, you know, playing defense. He is uh, simply, matter-of-factly, saying what he proposes despite what Johnson says.
1: I've uh, watched Paul Vallis for a number of years, but you have far more experience with him. Is he a demonstrably better candidate this time around than previous?
5: Uh, He is because uh, his handlers are controlling him and keeping him on message, and the campaign has got big dough to get that message on TV in a saturation way, and that's been the difference.
1: We have a ways to go, but that being said, what does Johnson have to do to close the gap and win?
5: Well, he has to get his base out. You know, he's going to continue to attack, and he's going to continue to get money to get his message on TV. He does a good job of displaying his empathy for the impoverished and programs to do things for the disadvantaged. Uh, He's as good at that as Paul is at uh, pushing, you know, Uh, Law and order is a civil riot, but if he can get uh, his base out, and the CTU and United Families are very good at putting, uh, well, they had people in every ward, John, and that got him into second place and into the runoff. So he's got to deliver uh, his base, and in a low turnout, he would have a chance.
1: Where do Chewy's people go?
5: Uh, I think Chewy's people probably stay home or go to Johnson. Uh, That's my hunch. Although I don't want to underplay the fear that uh, people who are Latino have for crime. And they may see Paul Vallis as a part of the solution there. So you can't assume that all of Chewy's support will go to Johnson.
1: So Johnson has a potential higher ceiling, but that depends on turnout. Vallis may be more static and his people will definitely uh, turn out, but it may not have uh, quite the upside.
5: Well, the the big factor for him is where do Lightfoot's supporters go? You know, the Lakefront Liberals on along the Gold Coast abandoned Lightfoot, and Johnson picked up some of the Lakefront Liberals up on the northern end of the of the uh, Lakefront. So the Lakefront Liberals are divided to be divided between Vallis and Johnson, but that black vote uh, in other parts of the city has to make a decision where to go, and they're being uh, led by endorsements like for uh, uh, Jesse, the former Secretary of State, and uh, Willie Wilson. He had 10% of the black vote, so 10% of the whole vote, much of which was black. So I would think that the endorsements don't do any of Alice any harm in the black community.
1: That Jesse White endorsement, from a guy who's untainted by scandal with that kind of reputation, that's significant for Paul Vallis, isn't it?
5: Well, well, I think it is, but the the better endorsements generally are the ones who, you know, the guy writes a check for Paul. And I don't know if either Willie or Jesse White have done that for Paul.
1: Talking here with uh, Bill Cameron, host of Take One on DLS. It's already, I, I believe, available on our website at com, the podcast page. It runs late this weekend, I think 10 o'clock on Sunday night because of uh, other programming. I, I talked about this maybe an hour or so ago about uh, Alderman Wagesback and Brendan Riley, Scott Wagasback and Brendan Riley, are trying to make our city council, the next iteration of the city council, way more independent. And they're organizing to create their own committee structure for the next administration, mm-hmm. which has always been determined by the mayor. Do they have a chance of getting this done?
5: Well, I, this looks to me like the beginning of an end. Their end goal is to organize themselves. Uh, but Paul Vallis, if he becomes mayor, has been very smart about uh, managing aldermen toward getting his budgets passed back in the 90s under Richard uh, M. Daly. So I would say they won't quite pull it off this time. But if it's Johnson, there may be uh, a different scenario, but... Eventually, I think, since we're on paper, a strong council, weak mayor, form of government. You may, with a string of one-term uh, mayors, see one day—not this next session—but a time when the uh, when the aldermen call their own shots and organize their own council, uh, decide who the chairmen are going to be of the various committees. Perhaps have more committees, that sort of thing. But. The rubber stamp isn't going to go away anytime soon.
1: In your years of uh, watching mayors and the city councils, who had the, uh, you know, who who had the, the most control of the city council, day in and day out while they were mayor?
5: Well, that would be the Dailies. Certainly, Richard J. Daly was the absolute uh, dictator, and the council respected him, except for seven guys who were independents. And Richard M. Daly followed the same playbook. Although uh, he caused a lot of, uh, you know, discontent and disappointment with the Aldermen by shoving down their throats the infamous parking meter deal. Remember that one, Mm -hmm. which is hated to this day.
1: Yeah, hated to this day, and then the Skyway too. Sold off swaths of the city to balance the budget, and we're still paying the price. That's right. So both dailies had an iron fist when it came to the city council. I'm still assuming that the most contentious era was 40 years ago with Harold Washington and the Eddies.
5: That's right. You had the uh, 29-21 split. Uh, so that was all out in the open. It was all about the money, really, but it was propelled by race, which made it really ugly, John.
1: Do you think that potentially with Vallis and Johnson, this all become, you know, Racially explosive.
5: Um, it hasn't so far, although I don't like to feature it in my Sunday show, and I'm disappointed that writers are, you know, making too big a fuss about it. I really don't think that Paul wants to make a big issue out of it. Uh, Johnson sees it as propellant, but doesn't quite play the race card completely. So I'm beginning to see it dim ever so little with every passing cycle.
1: What if Johnson goes back and gets Bernie Epson's slogan and, and he says, "Hey, vote for me before it's too late." Well A reversal. He, <laughs>
5: actually, he was he'll be watching for Vallis to do that, which Vallis won't. <laughs>
1: no, he won't. Um, what's on the podcast and the show? Uh,
5: uh, Kirk Diller, the RTH chairman. Mm -hmm. Uh, who explains about 11 alternatives to finding the money, $730 million of it, to avoid the fiscal cliff at the CTA, the Metra, and PACE, which is coming in two or three years.
1: I'm off next week, but when I return on the 20th, Monday the 20th, that's when the uh, Kennedy reconstruction starts. Uh, It's going to be down, you know, cut by two or three lanes, inbound for two years, two or three lanes outbound for two or three years, and uh, I believe I'm going to start with METRA coming up a week from Monday.
5: Yeah, you'd be smart to do it, although uh, Metro, generally, which I rode for 40 years, uh, is still a mass transit system stuck in the 1950s, isn't it? Well, how so? Well, I mean, you look at the uh, the systems in other cities of the world, and we're still, you know, in the 1950s with... I mean, some of those cars, some of those <laughs> train cars that people yeah. ride in, I rode in, uh, are on Medicare. They date back, you know, to the 1950s. And all of the lines go to uh, the loop. There's no suburb to suburb to speak of uh, transportation without going first downtown. So it's, you know, and it's noisy. It breaks down. The mechanical failures are (laughs) an epidemic and have been for decades. It's, you know, Jeff Ladd used to run Metro. Remember him back in the late 90s and early 2000s, up to about the mid-2000s? He used to uh, steal from the construction funds and the capital funds to hold fares in check. And that prevented a lot of... uh, Capital improvements that could have made Metra pulled it out of the 1950s, but well, he didn't
1: do it. Yeah, it's a the daily playbook, right? Sell off, sell off assets to balance the budget. Let the next guy worry about it.
5: Well, he didn't sell off assets. He just uh, used money that could have uh, been capital money, which could have improved the system, and uh, kept fares low.
1: I look forward to hearing the show, and I look forward to uh, checking it out on the podcast page and uh, talk to you in a couple weeks. Thanks, Bill. You're welcome. Take care. Bill Cameron, host of Take One on D L S.
0: You're listening to John Howell, Essential Essential Cuts, on 890-WLS.
4: Robert Blake,
1: actor, Emmy Award winner, starred in the crime series Beretta, died, he was 89, died yesterday, heart disease, California, L.A., Uh, started out in 1939 as Mickey, one of the Little Rascals, the Our Gang uh, movies. First film in 42, did a lot of movies, some with Humphrey Bogart. 1967's In Cold Blood. David Lynch's 1997 Lost Highway. That was his final screen credit. Uh, to people my age, I remember him from Beretta, where he played uh, that uh, tough cop with a bird on his shoulder.
0: Listen to me, you
6: tin horn. Danzy wants those pictures bad, and he's going to kill you to get them. Sooner or later. My guess is sooner. Well, I want the pictures, too. But I want him to save one of the best people in this whole world. Now, you got the ball. Look, I'm sorry I did it.
0: You're right. Oh, did I get it over my head? But I didn't mean to hurt her. But can't you see that if I give you those pictures, well, they're going to kill me.
6: All right. You got your deal. You give them to me, I'll see you get out of town with nobody following you,
5: and the rest of your life is yours, for whatever it's worth.
1: Okay, so... You remember Bretta. You remember the movies. Uh, gosh, also, I uh, still see him on some old uh, editions of Rawhide, right? But it was May 4th of 2001 that his wife was found shot in the head in his car outside a restaurant in Studio City, California. Uh, Blake said at the time that the murder must have occurred when he went briefly back into the restaurant after they had left the restaurant and they had gotten into the car and for some reason, he went back into the restaurant. Uh, I don't recall what his defense was. Uh, but that happened May of uh, 2001, about a year later. He was finally arrested on charges of first-degree murder. Uh, and two counts of solicitation of murder. March of 2005, he was acquitted. Acquitted. He was found liable in the wrongful death civil suit bought by, brought by his ex-wife's kids, he was ordered to pay $30 bucks. That was reduced to $15 million. I don't know whatever happened, if they got any money from him at all. He maintained his innocence in connection to the murder of his wife until the end of his life. In fact, he was on a show with Piers Morgan a few years ago, and they got into a shouting match about it. Now, I tell you all that to tell you this. A number of years ago, I went out to Los Angeles, and uh, I was working for the country music station at that time, And I was out there for the American Country Music Awards show or whatever it was called. And, you know, they filled up our time with all these country music receptions and parties, which was fine. But being in Los Angeles, I wanted to go see some real music, some real great musicians. Not that country music isn't real music. My next guest will take offense at that. But I asked my friend and my colleague, my dear friend, my longtime friend, former colleague at US99 for 17 years. She was there longer. I said, let's skip this uh, dumb record company party, and I'll take you to see Jack Sheldon. Okay, the, the story continues, but now let's welcome Trish Biondo back to my program. Hi, Trish, <laughs> how are you? Hi, John, I'm fine, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Is that, is, that's an accurate setup. Let's ditch this party.
6: It, that's, that's, that is absolutely the truth. Yeah, everybody wants to do the country music stuff, or... Go to like Rodeo Drive or any of that stuff, and you're like, no, I know this cool nightclub. Let's go see. I got this great. Tr- I want this trumpet player. Let's go see him. I'm like, okay, John.
1: Well, and I also
6: you do you do always have cool places to go.
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, be, because you're familiar with Jack Sheldon. He's the uh, Schoolhouse Rock voice. He's the guy. Right. And Jack, of course, I've talked about this. Uh, he's also a tremendous jazz trumpet player and a very funny guy. So we went to a little club in Burbank, not too far from the Carson Studios, NBC where it was just Jack Sheldon, Ross Tompkins from The Tonight Show, and they were just a duo. And it, it wasn't a tourist place. It was a place for locals to go hang out and see Jack. And so we were sitting there, and I remember Soupy Sales was there. Remember that Soupy Sales was there that yep. night? Yeah. yeah. With a very young, I'm assuming that was his niece? <laughs> I think it was his niece, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then Charlie Callis uh, was there as well, the actor. And then we were sitting there watching Jack Sheldon and play this magnificent jazz and tell filthy jokes in between every song. And then who walks in, in a T-shirt, looking like Bretta, Robert Blake. And why don't you pick it up uh, from that point on, because I do not find it at all out of... Just my limited interaction with Robert Blake that one night all those years ago to think that he might have had something to do with his wife's death.
6: Oh, he's bad. It, I mean, he it was. It was he was so erratic and so uh just crazy and out there and yelling at the stage and and yelling at everyone. I mean, it was just bizarre behavior was going on and we're just watching it like it. I'm like, John, I think I wanna leave. Like, I don't wanna be in the middle, of whatever this what's going on here. Um, but, you know, Jack Sheldon had the command of the stage and was put, try, you know, putting him in his place. And it was just, a, it was just a weird, you know, a weird scene. Cool exactly. to be there and witness it all though. Like you said, cause it was, it was not a tourist place. We were there where, you know, all these locals go to just kind of hang
1: out. Yeah it was, you know, it was interesting because Robert Blake came in, and I, for the life of you, I've been trying to think about this all day. I don't know what year we were there. So was this before he was charged with the murder of his wife or after? I don't know. We were there
6: several years for that, the Academy of Country Music Awards. We won the station in 1998. I'm not sure if that's when it was or – I don't really know. I, all those years kind of run together.
1: Would tell me about I it.
6: Feel, I feel like I know. I feel like it wasn't too long after that this happened,
1: though. So, well, See, I think we were there before it happened, because when yeah. it happened, I said to you and everybody else that would listen at the time, I said, I think he did it just based on his behavior that one night in Burbank.
6: Right. Exactly.
1: And so, he, I mean, he, he, he walked in before. there, and just to elaborate on what you said, he walked in there, he was alone, He's not out with a group. He walked in there, he was wearing a t-shirt, chewing gum, I don't know if he was just... I don't know if I don't know if he was drunk. Or I don't know what was going on, but I don't want to besmirch the man's reputation. You know, he just died, but he was out of control and he was heckling Jack Sheldon, who was heckling him back, going Bobby, Bobby, we'll get to it. He wanted Jack mm-hmm. to sing songs that he wanted right then and there, you know, mm-hmm. sing uh, "Embraceable uh, You" or whatever. You know, uh, he, he just wanted to hear the songs. He like like he wanted Jack Sheldon to be a jukebox, and right. Sheldon was having none of it. But it was. He was out of control. And how long do you think he stayed? 15, 20 minutes, and finally he just knocked over the table and left.
6: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was it was a quite a while that he was acting kind of crazy. It was just bizarre behavior. It's the only way to put it.
1: Yeah. It must have been before he was charged because I recall when he was charged thinking, I, I buy it, just based yeah. on seeing him for 15 minutes.
6: Yeah, it was before he was charged because that's we, we both were talking about that. When you said it, you're like – after what we saw, like, is this far fetched? I'm like, I just. Because <laughs> yeah. I was getting uncomfortable. Like, I did kind of look at you like, maybe we should leave, you know? And you're like, I'm just watching the show. The show just began. Chris,
1: <laughs> I said, we have a show within a show. We're not leaving. <laughs> this is great. We would, we, nowadays, of course, we'd probably have cell phone v- uh, footage of it, wouldn't we? Yeah,
6: we'd be pulling out the cameras and video, and we didn't have them back then.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh. How many years were you at U.S. 99?
6: Uh, 28.
1: 28? Holy mackerel.
6: I know. It's crazy,
1: isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, five-star. Wow. Hall of Fame.
5: <laughs> I love it. All right. It,
1: Still one of the great million-dollar laughs in the business, Trish Biondo. <laughs> well, I thought about you first when I, uh, when I saw that last night that Robert Blake had died. I said, i got to get Trish on the – just touch base with it remember our Robert Blake moment.
6: I know. John's like, hey, I'm thinking to myself. John's gonna have me on just so I can I can I can verify. Yeah, it is true. This is not a made up story. He was there, and this is what was going on. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. I have told this story previously, and I think people think that I've embellished, but it it was out of control that night. It was weird. It was odd. It was,
6: you know, it was weird, and that was not that wasn't the time we 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 did not because we were there before or after depending on the years with our dads, right? And that's when we were in the restaurant with Connie Selka and Van White and um, Donna Mills.
1: That was that wanted, was. I wanted your
6: dad wanted a, I wanted your dad to take a picture, and you're like, "No, no, we're not doing that." That wasn't the same pictures. trip, right?
1: No, it wasn't the same trip. But,
6: well, you just you found all these cool places to go where the kind of the clubs just kind of hung out because that's where they were.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't want. I didn't want to go to the same old parties everybody else goes to. So, anyway, <laughs> right? Oh, who let the dogs out? All right, uh, Trish. All right, exactly. Uh, thanks for your time. I'm I'm woefully late again, but thanks so much for your time. Nice talking right. with you. Tell Chuck hey, I said St. hi. St.
6: Patrick's Day parade. Make sure you watch your hat, John.
1: Were you with me the day I lost my hat down there?
6: Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. That was a, that was an expensive hat. <laughs> really? That, that, I
6: know. I've heard that, about it every year. Since. That
1: angers me. That anger when I think about that. Who took my derby? I. It was in that. <laughs> oh, that still irritates me. So, you know, Be careful uh, out there. It just <laughs> irritates me. Somebody has my Trist, nice hat.
6: Check up with you, John.
1: All right, Trist. Tell Chuck I said hi.
6: I will. Take care.
1: See you. Bye-bye. Trist Biano, who uh, along with me witnessed uh, the, the uh, now famous, hopefully, uh, meltdown of Robert Blake in Los Angeles.
0: John Howell Essential Cuts. Check back every weekday for another episode of John Howell Essential Cuts on 890 WLS.